All right, well, we're going to get into our teaching today, and we are wrapping up our Easter season resurrection teaching series, and uh, it's called Then He Rose, and uh, once we finish this series, starting next week, we're going to go into a new teaching series, and it might be kind of a long one. It might take us through the whole summer even. We're going to teach through the book of Genesis, and uh, so we're pretty excited about that. Genesis, the word itself means beginnings. And so obviously Genesis is the beginning of the Bible story. It's the beginning of the story of God with mankind. But there are so many important things that started in Genesis that still affect our life today and are still critical to our faith today. And we're going to begin to go through that. And you may notice if you do the rooted Bible reading with us, that we're reading through Genesis and the rooted Bible readings. It's almost like I planned it. I did. I did plan it. All right, so if you haven't gotten your May calendar for our rooted Bible reading, you can grab it at the Welcome Center, and we're reading through the book of Genesis for the next couple of months, one chapter at a time, and, and we invite you to join us in that. So today, then he rose. What we're looking at is the premise that the resurrection changed everything. Jesus died on the cross for us, and his blood that he shed on the cross and his death, the fact that he was willing to give up his life on the cross, paid the price completely for our sin. Everything that needed to be paid for our sin was paid on the cross. But the cross was not the end of the story. See, if Jesus dying was the end of the story, here's the sad part, then us dying would also be the end of the story. And if, if dying is the end of our story, then we don't have a whole lot to look forward to. And there's not a whole lot to our faith, and there's not a whole lot to get excited about. But because Jesus rose, we can get excited that we're going to rise also. Because he was resurrected, we know that we're going to be resurrected. And when we are resurrected, the Bible says we're going to be resurrected with perfect bodies. Can we get a hallelujah for that? Perfect bodies. Come on. Whew, bodies that don't hurt anymore. Man, I woke up this morning with a Charlie horse in my calf, and I'm just thinking, I didn't even do anything yesterday except jump around at a Tadashi concert. I'm getting old. Jeez. All right? Bodies that don't hurt anymore. Bodies that don't get tired anymore. Bodies that don't put on any body fat anymore. Come on. Hallelujah. Because he resurrected, we're going to be resurrected. Death was not the end of the story for Jesus, and death is not the end of the story for us. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at how the resurrection changed everything in people's lives. And so we've been doing some character studies from the Bible. We started with Peter, and we looked at how the resurrection restored his destiny to be a leader in the kingdom of God. We looked at Mary Magdalene and how the resurrection rewarded her devotion that she could be in the presence of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Paul, and we saw how with the resurrection, when Paul experienced the resurrected Jesus, nothing else mattered. The whole life and identity that he had built to cover his insecurities and his fears, all of it, he said, was rubbish. Nothing else mattered. Once he met Jesus, it didn't matter what people thought, what people said. He just wanted to please Jesus. And today, for our last one, we're going to look at James, the brother of Jesus. And so you'll notice in your notes there's lots of Scripture verses. We may or may not get through all of them, but uh, because it's a character study, we're going to try to jump through all of these verses and, and study from this. But what we want to focus on today is finding joy from resentment. 
Resentment is something that affects all of our lives. Sooner or later, we're mad at somebody. We're in a difficult situation. We're doing a job we don't like. We're somewhere we don't want to be. And resentment can set in. And we're going to look at James's life today and see how resentment set in in his life. But then we want to look at joy coming from resentment. And so at the end of the service today, we're going to pray and we're going to invite you to come forward. If you're struggling with resentment in your life, we want you to come forward and receive prayer and experience the resurrected Jesus so you can find joy in the midst of your resentment. So let's jump into this. In Matthew chapter 13 is the first place that we see James named as one of the brothers of Jesus. So let's read this. Starting in verse 54, it says, He, being Jesus, he came to his hometown, his hometown being Nazareth, So Jesus is coming back to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So Jesus goes home to Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue. It's where they, we know at this time, the synagogues were the center of Jewish life. It's where they got their teaching. It's where they experienced fellowship and community. Jesus goes into the synagogue, starts teaching with authority, starts doing miracles. People are getting healed, and the people are amazed. They're like, wait a minute. We know this kid. This kid grew up here in our town. We know his mom, Mary. We know his dad was the carpenter. We know his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And no, not that Judas, okay? Not the one that betrayed him. There was lots of boys named Judas back in that day. His sisters are here. They're just amazed. Where did he get all of this authority and power? We saw this kid grow up right here in front of us. And so in this, James is named as one of the brothers of Jesus. So let's talk about what do we know about James. First off, He was a younger half-brother of Jesus. And you say, well, why do you say half-brother? Because they had different dads. Jesus' dad was God, and James' dad was Joseph, right? So we know that Mary miraculously conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Jesus. After she gave birth to Jesus, then Joseph married her properly, and together they had lots more kids, and so Jesus had brothers and sisters. Same mom, different dads, right? One's dad was God. Everybody else, their dad was Joseph. So he was a younger half-brother of Jesus, and we know that he was probably the second oldest boy in the family. How do we know that? Because in Jewish tradition, when you listed the names of family members, you listed them from oldest to youngest. So the fact that it says here that his brothers were James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, is that's probably the order they were born in. And so Jesus was the oldest boy, and James is the next oldest boy. So he's probably the second oldest boy in the family. Now, let's talk about resentment. Why would James be resentful of Jesus? Well, how many of you have siblings? Anybody out there? How many of you have older siblings? How many of you have ever resented being compared to your sibling? Oh, you liars. Bunch of liars out here. Nobody wants to raise their hand, all right? So... We resent being compared to our siblings. Now, I had it kind of easy because my brother got in a ton of trouble at school. 
So he didn't set the bar real high for me. Uh, my brother was two years older than me, so we would have all the same teachers, but I would have them two years later. Right? And so that first day of class, you're starting you know, a new grade in school with a new teacher, and they read, Aaron Chedester. Chedester? Are you Jason's brother? Yeah. Uh, oh. Okay, so, so it was pretty cool. I didn't, I didn't have to worry too much about the bar being set too high for me. But imagine if your sibling was Jesus. And what do we know about Jesus? He was perfect. He never sinned. Could you imagine the resentment of having to be compared to your perfect brother? Some of you have actually said those words out loud. Oh, I know my brother's perfect, but his brother actually was perfect. And he had to be compared to him his whole life. You know, Jesus never talks back to me, right? Jesus never picks on his little brothers. Why are you picking on your little brother? You know, Jesus empties the dishwasher, and I don't even have to ask him. Okay, so what, whatever the case may be, you grow up with Jesus, there is bound to be some resentment in that family. Another thing we know about James is that he was not one of the original 12 disciples. And this could be confusing because there's lots of Jameses in here. He was not one of the original 12 disciples. Two of the original 12 were named James. You got James the Greater, who was the son of Zebedee, and this is the one we hear about most often, the, the brothers John and James, the sons of Zebedee, and uh, they were known as the sons of thunder, which means they could cause a little ruckus when they needed to. So you had James the Greater, but then you also had James the Lesser. That's kind of a terrible nickname, right? Just because one of them had to be James the Greater. I guess I'm James the Lesser. But uh, James the Lesser was the son of Alphaeus. So we have the son of Zebedee and we have the son of Alphaeus. Two Jameses were part of the original 12 disciples, but these are not the James that we're talking about today. The James that we're talking about, his nickname in the early church was actually James the Just. He was known as James the Just. Why is that? Because he was so uh, integrous. He was so righteous. He was so passionate about the people that he got this nickname. He was James the Just. The James we're talking about today wrote the epistle of James. So when you're reading the New Testament and you get to the letter that's called James, that was not written by James the Greater. It was not written by James the Lesser. It was written by James the Just, the brother of Jesus. And uh, he probably wrote it somewhere around 45 to 48 A.D. We don't know exactly when he wrote it, but uh, we can assume he wrote it before the Jerusalem Council, which took place in 49 A.D., so he wrote it probably shortly before then. And we also know that he was martyred by the Jews, and the scholars actually disagree on this. Some scholars say in 62 A.D., other scholars say it was in 69 A.D. that he was martyred by the Jews. But this is interesting because during this time period, the 60s A.D. was when Nero became emperor of Rome. And Nero was a psychopath who enjoyed murdering Christians for sports. And so it was around this same time that Nero had Peter executed. Nero had Paul executed. But James was not martyred by the Romans. He was actually martyred by the Jews during this same time period. So let's look at James before the resurrection. Let's get this picture of the resentment that we're talking about today. Let's begin in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 
This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So if you know this story, this was Jesus' first public miracle. They were at a wedding feast in Cana. At the wedding feast, they ran out of wine, which would have been a huge embarrassment for the host family to run out of wine before the party was over. Mary was there along with all of her sons, and she looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus is like, woman, what does that have to do with me? And then she looks at the servants and says, you just do whatever he says. And sure enough, Jesus turns water into wine, and it's his first miracle. Why is this significant? Because his brothers were there with him. It says in verse 12 that when, he was done, when they were done with this wedding feast, all of them went together back to Capernaum. They stayed there for a few days, and then most likely his mom and his brothers went home to Nazareth, and Jesus went on with his now newfound public ministry. So his brothers witnessed him turning water into wine. Fast forward to John chapter 7. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So in, in chapter 2, verse 11, it says that his disciples saw the miracle and believed in him. But it says his brothers, who saw the same miracle, were not believing in him. His brothers did not believe in him. They did not believe what he was claiming to be, the Messiah, the sent one from God. And so what are they doing here? They're mocking him. So they grew up in, the, in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. Judea is the southern region of Israel, and Judea was kind of like the big show, right? Judea is where Jerusalem was, the temple was, it's where the Sanhedrin was, it's where, uh, it's where the, the larger cities were. Judea was the big show. Galilee, that was just like rural area, right? We're just the quiet farmers up here in Galilee. If you want to be in the big show, you go down to Judea. So what are his brothers saying to him? It says that the Feast of Booths was coming. This was one of the feasts where all the Jews did a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And they're saying, hey, it's the Feast of Booths. Why don't you go down to Judea? If you're such a big deal, everybody should know about you. So why don't you go do all your works in public? Stop keeping them secret up here in Galilee. Go down there to the big show and let everybody see what you're doing. They're mocking him. Where does this resentment come from? Well, think about this. The father of the family was Joseph. We hear about Joseph when Jesus is 12 years old. But then when Jesus is 30 and for the rest of his life, we never hear about Joseph again. We only hear about Mary doing things alone. So the best conclusion we can draw is that somewhere between Jesus age 12 and Jesus age 30, Joseph, his stepdad, dies. And in Jewish culture, 
when the father of the home died and the mom was left as a widow, it is now the responsibility of the oldest son to take care of the family and to take the lead in the family. So when Jesus, at 30 years old, decides to go off and become a traveling preacher to declare himself the Christ, he left the family. And according to Jewish culture, he was supposed to be taking care of the family. So imagine the resentment of the brothers who are left behind. Well, we're back here taking care of the family. Jesus is off doing his crazy religious stuff, stirring people up all over the countryside. But we're back home. And if you can imagine James, who was probably a carpenter because whatever the family business was, the children were usually raised up in the family business. So James is a carpenter, and he's doing the work. And have you ever done a job before you were just resenting it? Right? And so, you know, you've been doing whatever your job is. I can't believe all of my coworkers called in sick. They left me here to do this all by myself. I'm doing, right? None of us have ever had that attitude. Okay. Either. So imagine James, a carpenter. So he's either building a house or he's building furniture. And he's doing the work, and he's like, I can't believe I'm here in the wood shop all by myself. Jesus is out, just stirring up crowds around the countryside, abandoning his own mother, and now here I am doing all the work to take care of the family. Resentment was setting in. And his brothers mocked Jesus because they did not believe who he said he was or the things that he was doing. Let's take it a little deeper. Mark chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21, it says, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. He has lost his senses. That's a nice way of saying he's crazy. He's gone bananas. The lug nuts are loose. The wheels are wobbling. Okay? Now it says here in verse 21, when his own people heard of this. The Greek word there for his own people is a word that actually means one that comes from your side. So it's referring to family. Now depending on which translation of the Bible you're reading, some translations actually say when his friends heard about this. I don't think that's a good translation. Others will say when his kinsmen heard about this, when his family heard about this, the one that we just read says when his own people heard of this. But this is referring to his family. His family heard that Jesus came home. He's back in Nazareth. He's in a house. The house is so full of people, nobody can move. Nobody can eat a meal. But he's in there teaching. And his family hears about it, and they think he's crazy. And so it says, what are they coming to do? They're coming to take him into custody. Right? They're going to take him and put him into custody. Right? This is like protective custody. In California, we called this a 5150 because that was the code in the state law book that says if somebody was a threat to themselves or others, you could take them into protective custody. Somebody was not well, you could take him into protective custody. So his family was showing up to take Jesus into protective custody. Why? Because the Jewish culture was very much an honor and shame culture. And I know many of you have lived in, continue to live in, an honor and shame culture. This is new to me. I'm actually just learning it in this season of my life. But in an honor and shame culture... 
When you do something shameful, you're bringing shame upon the entire family. So for Jesus to be out there claiming to be God and claiming to be the Messiah, his brothers thought he is shaming the entire family. He is an embarrassment. We need to silence him. People are laughing at us. Oh, yeah, your brother, God, (laughs) right? He was bringing shame upon the entire family, and they needed to stop him. So if we skip ahead to verse 31, it says, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So you can imagine these four brothers, right? they got to come up with a plan. All right, we can't get in there, so let's send somebody in. When Jesus comes out, you two stand behind him. You'll jump him from behind. We'll get him from the front. We got some rope. We'll tie him up. We'll get him home, and, and, and we'll, we'll get him out of the public. They were ashamed. Jesus' response and answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so Jesus basically rejects his family. He says, If you have mocked and rejected me, then I will reject you. He says, Who's my family? My family is those who do the will of God. And so now we have got a divide in the family, a divide so deep, in fact, that when Jesus is hanging on the cross and his mom is sitting near the cross watching him die, rather than asking his brothers to take care of his mom, he asks, We have the disciple to take care of his mom for him. So what we have here is we have resentment. James resents his brother. He believes that his brother abandoned the family. He believes that his brother has shamed the family. His brother has now rejected the family. And we have all of this resentment build up. This is James before the resurrection. Now let's look after the resurrection. Right after the ascension of Jesus, so right after the resurrected Jesus floated up out of sight and went to stand at the right hand of the throne of God. We have this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These are the original twelve minus Judas Iscariot. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. Remember, we learned two weeks ago that the women were a critical part of traveling with Jesus' ministry. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So suddenly now his brothers, who were divided from the family, who mocked him, didn't believe in him, who resented him, now they're in the upper room with the other 120 disciples praying to receive the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus. Something happened. Something happened. Fast forward to Acts chapter 12, and this is the story where Peter is miraculously led out of prison by the angel, right? Peter thinks he's dreaming it, but the angel is actually opening every door and leading Peter out of prison. Peter goes to where the church is praying, 
They think he's a ghost at first because they can't believe that he walked out of prison. But he goes inside, and in Acts 12, 17, it says, But motioning them to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. He's basically saying, Listen, I need to lay low for a minute. I just walked out of prison with nobody's permission. Right? We can say an angel opened all the doors, but they're just going to think this was a prison break and I am now an escaped convict. So he says, I'm going to go lay low for a while, but can you please tell James what has happened? Go tell James what has happened. By Acts chapter 12, James is now the key leader of the church of Jerusalem. So James somehow went from resentment to being in the upper room praying to now 11 chapters later, he is the key leader of the church of Jerusalem. Three chapters later in Acts chapter 15, we have what was called the Council of Jerusalem. And this is where now that the gospel had opened up to Gentiles and it wasn't just Jews now that were in the church, the leaders of the church had to decide what are we going to do with these Gentiles? Should we force them to get circumcised? Should we force them to follow Jewish law? Or are we just going to let them be free to be followers of Jesus? And in Acts 15, 13, it says this. After they had stopped speaking, who was they? Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. That's a pretty heavy-hitting lineup of speakers right there. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. After Peter... And Paul and Barnabas, James stands up, gives his opinion. His opinion becomes the deciding opinion of the entire council of Jerusalem. They write a letter based off of James' opinion, and they send it out to all of the other churches. So at this point now, James has the voice of authority at the council of Jerusalem. He went from the upper room to being one of the key leaders of the church to now being recognized as the leader of the church of Jerusalem. Let's listen to how Paul describes him in Galatians. Chapter 1, verse 18. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul as he's just beginning his ministry, goes to Jerusalem, he wants to get to know Peter. He wants to make sure their hearts are in alignment before Paul goes out as a representative and ambassador of Jesus. So he spends 15 days just getting to know Peter. And he says, during that time, I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul identifies James as one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Next chapter, Galatians 2, verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Now, Paul's being a little snarky here, okay? And we can understand why. We learned last week that Paul gave up everything to follow Jesus. His reputation, his identity, everything. So we can understand Paul being a little snarky when he's talking about other people's reputation. Of these who have a high reputation in the church, right? But he goes on and says, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. 
And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So here... Paul recognizes James along with Peter and John as one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. And he declares that even as Paul himself had been called as an apostle to the Gentiles, that James along with Peter and John were called to be apostles to the Jews. And this is why if you read the epistle of James, it is a very Jewish letter. If you read the epistles of Paul, you're, you're going to read a bunch about just grace and, and identity in Christ and, 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 and finding everything in Jesus. Then you read the letter from James, and it's very much practical application. People say they have faith without works, but I show my faith by my works, and faith without works is dead, and he goes into very practical application. Some people have even said that their letters aren't congruous, but they are. It's just that Paul was writing to Gentiles and James was writing to the Jewish people because James, as a pillar of the church of Jerusalem, was called to be an apostle to the Jewish people. Listen to what James even says about himself in the introduction of his letter, James 1.1. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He is writing to the 12 tribes. He's writing to the Jewish people who are becoming followers of Jesus. And he identifies himself as a slave of God. And he identifies Jesus as both Lord and Christ. I did even a little bit more research. And these are some some things we've learned about James from outside of the Bible. I love this. Hegesippus which I have no idea how to pronounce that name, but we're just going to roll with Hegesippus because it sounds good, all right? Hegesippus, who was an early church historian in the 100s A.D., he wrote this about James. He alone, I say, was wont to go into the temple, and he used to be found kneeling on his knees, begging forgiveness for the people, so that the skin of his knees became horny like that of a camel's, by reason of his constantly bending the knee in adoration to God and begging forgiveness for the people. So James was known for having rough knees like a camel. Because he spent so much time in the temple on his knees, worshiping God and interceding on behalf of the people. James was a man of passionate prayer, and he was a man that was passionate for the people that they would find forgiveness in Jesus. So much so that that his knees were just calloused from being on the ground. Eusebius, who was an early church historian in the 200s A.D., he wrote this. The apostles voted James as the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. And that word bishop would mean the same thing as what we understand today as a senior pastor. So I put senior pastor in parentheses. That's my addition to the quotes. The rest of the quote was from Eusebius. So even though James wasn't qualified to be one of the original 12 Because he didn't walk with Jesus for those three years, the original 12 voted James to be the senior pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And then we can read about his martyr at the same time in the Bible. But Josephus, who was a contemporary of James, lived at the same time. And Josephus wasn't a Christian. Josephus was a Jewish writer. And then also again from Hegesippus, this is what we hear about the martyrdom of James. 
is that uh, depending on whether you think it was 62 or 69 A.D., that the Jews were so fed up about this movement of Jesus taking over. They, they, they tried to just peacefully leave them alone, and they just figured it would fade away after a while, but it didn't fade away. It just kept growing. And so finally, the Jews were like, all right, we got to put a stop to this. And they figured James was the best person because he was the most respected leader in Jerusalem. And so they came to James, and they said, James, you need to renounce Jesus. You need to tell all these people to stop following Jesus, and you need to bring everybody back to the Jewish law. And they figured the best way to get him to do it was to bring him up to the pinnacle of the temple so from the very top of the temple he could shout out to everybody in Jerusalem. So they bring him to the top of the temple, and they're like, all right, James, say what you need to say. And you know what James did? He starts preaching the gospel. He starts declaring the name of Jesus and that everybody needs to repent and turn to Jesus. And the Jews are so infuriated that they just pushed him right off the roof. And he fell to the concrete below, but the fall didn't kill him. I imagine it wounded him pretty badly, but it didn't kill him. Now he's lying on the ground, but he's not dead. And the Jews are so enraged that they grab stones and they start stoning him to death. And as they're stoning him to death, he rolls over on those camel's knees of his and begins to pray for them. And one man is so infuriated by it that he picks up a club and he bashes his head in with a club. And James died from blunt force trauma to the head. Now these writers, Josephus and Hegesippus, wrote that James was martyred in 69 A.D. Do you know what happened in 70 A.D.? The Romans seized Jerusalem, destroyed the entire city, including burning the temple to the ground. Listen to this quote from Hegesippus. The more sensible even of the Jews were of the opinion that this James's death was the cause of the siege of Jerusalem, which happened to them immediately after his martyrdom for no other reason than their daring act against him. Josephus, at least, has not hesitated to testify this in his writings, where he says, these things happened to the Jews to avenge James the Just, who was a brother of Jesus that is called the Christ, for the Jews slew him although he was a most just man. Even Josephus, who wasn't a Christian, believed that the fall of Jerusalem was God's judgment against the Jews for murdering James. This is how respected of a man that he was. So what happened? How do we go from resentment and rejection and abandonment and division within the family to this man who rises up to become the leader of the church of Jerusalem, to declare himself a slave of God, to declare his brother Jesus, both Lord and Christ, so much so that he was willing to give his life on the steps of the temple as a follower of Jesus. What happened? 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So think about this. Jesus comes back from the dead. First he appears to Peter. 
Then he appears to the rest of the original 12, minus Judas Iscariot. Then he appears to 500 people at one time. And then he goes looking for his brothers. Those brothers that he had left so full of resentment. That family that was so divided. The resurrected Jesus did not want to leave his brothers in resentment. And so we know that Jesus appeared before his brothers, resurrected. He said, here I am, brothers. I said if they would kill me, I would come back. Here I am. I'm back. Look, here's the holes in my wrists. Here's the hole in my side. And that encounter with the resurrected Jesus changed everything for James. Changed everything. Think about where he was at with his brother dead on a cross and James filled with resentment, thinking to himself, I couldn't live up to his standards my whole life. My whole life. Just once I wished Jesus would get in trouble. Just once I wished he would get whoopings instead of me. I thought it would happen when he was 12 and he stayed behind in Jerusalem and freaked my parents out for three days because they couldn't find him. I thought for sure that was the day Jesus would get some whoopings. But no, mom just cherishes it in her heart and we go home. I could never live up to Jesus. Jesus left the family to pursue this religious fanaticism. He abandoned us even after our father died. He left me to take care of the family. And then he brought shame on the family through his crazy claims and being cursed on a tree. The Jews believed anybody that was hung on a tree to die brought curse upon their entire family. So here's James. He rejected us. He abandoned us. He brought shame and curse upon us. Oh, but then he rose. Come on, but then he rose. And the resurrection changes everything. And for James, it changed everything. Now James could say, I realize that he was everything he said he was. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. Everything he said was true. And he wasn't bringing shame on our family. He was bringing glory to God. And I realized that he had been modeling the best way for all of us to live all along. He wasn't doing it for us to resent him. He was doing it so that we would know how to live. And I realized that through all the difficulties, all those years I was supporting the family and I was resenting or the family was doing it, I was actually a part of God's plan because I was taking care of the family so Jesus could go and fulfill the purposes of God. And I realized that joy makes the journey way more fulfilling than resentment. Can I have the worship team come back today? It may sound cliche, but it's not the circumstances in life that matter. It's the condition of our heart within those circumstances of life. We could be doing the same thing and have two completely different conditions of our hearts. Right? We could be pulling weeds And if we're pulling weeds with resentments, I can't believe I'm out here pulling weeds. Of course it's 85 degrees today. I'm just dying out here. Why did God even create weeds? And they're just going to grow back anyway. Why am I even pulling them? Or we could be doing the same job, but doing it with joy. 
I'm out here pulling weeds for Jesus. Thank God for sunshine. Hallelujah that I live on Kauai, and I'm just being a steward right now of the earth, and I'm taking care of these weeds, right? It's the same job. It's the same circumstances, but joy makes it a whole lot more fulfilling than resentments. And that's why James could write these words that are at the bottom of your notes. Consider it all joy, my brothers. When you encounter various trials, consider it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work, perfect result, so that you may be perfect, which means mature, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. James could write these words because he had lived these words. Right? He had wasted years in resentment, and he realized, I don't want anybody else to waste those years in resentment, so I'm going to write, count it all joy, my brothers, when you go through various trials. Because whether you're joyful or resentful isn't going to change the fact that you're in a trial. Oh, but if you're joyful in the trial, it's worth it. Because when we're joyful in the trial, we're getting more mature. We're becoming more like Jesus. God is doing something in our lives. Because of the resurrection, I found joy in the midst of my resentment. And I want everyone else to find that same joy also. Will you stand with me today? The resurrection changes everything. Listen, we all go through resentment. This week it might be some of us. Next week it might be some others of us. But we all go through resentment. It might be somebody who has hurt you and you want to be mad at them and you want to blame them for the circumstances you're in right now. It might be that life hasn't turned out the way you wanted it to and you had big plans and where you're at right now doesn't look like big plans and so you resent where you're at in life right now. You might resent the job that you have to do the team that you have to work with. But none of it is worth it. Our prayer today is that you would find joy, and we find that joy in an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Thank you, Jesus. God, we just pray right now. Would you come and encounter us, Lord? And especially for those of us today that are struggling with this resentment in our hearts, would you soften our hearts today? God, would you dig down to the core of that anger, whether it's envy or jealousy or disappointment or lost hope? Would you dig to the core of it, God, and begin to work it out of us today? I pray that forgiveness would begin to flow today. I pray that joy would begin to flow today, Lord. I pray that God, even reconciliation would begin today. Resentment within families, even resentment between husband and wife, resentment between father and son, father and daughter, mother and daughter, mother and son, would begin to be healed even now. And it's healed in a touch from Jesus. It's an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Help us to see our trials in a new perspective, God that it's not something that's meant to wear us down, that every trial is, because, is a part of your plan. Every trial is a part of the glory of your kingdom, God. 
So let us count it all joy at every trial, every difficulty, every difficult person, every person who hurt us, every person who failed us, every person who spoke against us. Let forgiveness flow. Let joy flow in our hearts, Lord. We thank you for that. Maybe for those that have never followed Jesus, this would be the moment where they have that first encounter with Jesus. And Lord, you would begin to do a new thing in their hearts. And they would surrender to you, God, and you would forgive their sins. You would give them a newness of heart and a new life, Lord. We thank you for that, Jesus. Let me invite the prayer team to come this morning. If you can come forward. And I want to invite you, if you need prayer today, to come forward. Specifically, if God is working on your heart right now in terms of of resentment, I want to invite you to come forward for prayer. And I know what it's like, oh, if I come forward, everyone's going to think I'm the angry person. I'm not coming forward. Don't let what people think stop you. If God is working on your heart right now, who cares what people think? Come forward and be set free from resentment and experience joy today. But you can come forward for anything. If you need healing, if you need encouragement, if you need God to move in an area of your life, the prayer team is here to pray with you. If you're not coming forward, please join us in worship and let's set the atmosphere as God touches and changes people's lives. Go ahead, begin to come forward for prayer.